0: You know, two of the most debated parts of the Bible are Genesis and Revelation. Creation and new creation, the beginning and the end. And people argue over, you know, how literal should we take these accounts? How much of them are just figurative language meant to communicate deeper truths? How much of it is... Is actual historical accounts and people people fuss and they fight over these things. In fact, if you have got ten Christians in a room, you probably have twenty different opinions on how to interpret Genesis one. And that's you know depending on the day of the week could be more than that. So as I come to these messages, I want you to know I'm approaching them with a little bit of trepidation and with a lot of humility and with a lot of study and a lot of prayer. Don, I've been pouring over the text. I've also been reading from a variety of scholars and theologians, and even scientists who are believers, uh, each of them with their own ideas and interpretations about the finer points, the minutia, the ins and the outs about how God created the universe. And so as I was studying and, and preparing for the past few months for this sermon, I started thinking, why is it that these passages, particularly in Genesis and Revelation, are so hotly debated? Why are there so many different opinions about how history began and how history will conclude. And I thought, well, that's pretty simple. None of us were there to see creation, and none of us have been able to go into the future to see how it's all going to come to conclusion, right? No human being, at least before Adam and Eve were created, was there to witness anything that we read about in Genesis chapter 1. All we know about how things began and how things will conclude is what God has chosen to share with us. We know what He wants us to know. And so Job 38.4 is kind of my overarching verse to, to keep in my mind as I come to this text. And God is confronting Job and He says, Where were you when I established the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Because Job thought he knew. Job thought he understood all this. And God put him in his place and humbled him. I think we could use a little dose of that. But this also levels the playing field. So as we think about what we believe about creation, and I'll tell you a little bit more about what I believe specifically, what we believe about creation versus what the lost world believes, versus what naturalistic, atheistic, humanist scientists believe about the world, you know, the Darwinian evolutionary perspective, the playing field is level because guess what? No scientist was there to observe how the world was made either. All scientists can offer us are theories, their opinions, their beliefs, their interpretations about how all things came to be. All scientists can do is offer us theories because they couldn't observe it and they can't experiment and test it in a laboratory. It's something that happened long ago. In fact, if you gathered ten scientists into a room, you'd probably get 20 different opinions about how things began, the universe, the world, and life. They are interpreting scientific data with faith in their worldview, just as we interpret the biblical text with our faith in God as Creator. So, in today's sermon, I want to give you a broad overview and introduction to where we're going to be going as we look at Genesis 1 through 3 and how it speaks to the most important issues of our day and how it serves as the foundation for a biblical worldview. Genesis answers the big questions Where did we come from? Why are we here? Where are we going? How should we treat the world and the people around us? Why is there evil, suffering, and death in the world, and what do we do about it? Genesis one through three is going to answer these big fundamental questions. I firmly believe one hundred percent that Genesis is the divinely inspired, revealed Word of God. It is inerrant, it is it is true, and God gave it to us through Moses who wrote it, I think, somewhere between the Red Sea and the Jordan River. In fact, Jesus, and we talk about this on our Wednesday night study, Jesus said that Moses authored Genesis. So I believe Jesus, and I have yet to find any reasonable uh, uh, any, any evidence to make me discount the fact that Moses wrote this book. the creation account to Moses. Why did God say, All right, this is how the book has to begin, this is where we're going to start? What is God saying to Israel through this? What is he saying to us through this? Well, I don't believe that God was particularly interested in addressing 20th and 21st century scientific theories. When he revealed this to Moses, God wasn't worried about the Big Bang Theory or Darwinian evolution. I don't believe the purpose of this passage is to assuage our curiosities about how all this happened and, and whether it took six literal days or, or not or how old is the earth. and Nor does God intend this to be a science textbook. In fact, if you imagine with me if God chose to reveal the creation to Moses through 21st century scientific knowledge and language, do you think Moses would have understood what he was talking about? Do you think the people in the thousands of years since then would have, would have been able to understand Genesis 1? Would we be able to grasp what God was saying to us. I don't think so. Remember, the Bible was written for all people of every age and every land to be able to read and understand truths about God, about the world, and about themselves. That's why God is is revealing this. So while I believe definitively that Genesis 1-3 through is an account of real historical events, the message of Genesis is more than a scientific message. It's not to be read as an as a encyclopedia article either. It is 100% true. It is the inspired, infallible, and errant Word of God, and I believe that it should be read simply, and I believe it should be taken at face value. We should take the text seriously for what it says. But we must understand what the message of this text is. What is God focused on? What does God most want us to know from this? How does this make an impact in our daily lives. That's what I'm going to try to outline for us today. And we'll begin with the first two verses, which acts sort of as a preamble to the rest of the creation account. God's given us sort of a, an introductory overview in these first two verses. Look with me at Genesis 1, 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness covered the surface of the watery depths, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface Of the waters. The first message of Genesis 1 is the historical reality of creation. The historical reality of creation in the beginning. Don't miss how profound that statement is. The universe had a beginning, there was a moment of creation. The world and the universe didn't always exist. Just as there was a time when you and I didn't exist, guess what? History didn't begin when you were born. There was a time when the earth didn't exist, when the sun didn't exist, when the universe itself, when nothing outside of God existed. There was a beginning. Now, as we read this, and and we'll come back to this several times, it's important to remember the cultural and religious context of the people around the Israelites, right? They've left Egypt, with the Egyptian religion, the Egyptian worldview, the Egyptian cosmology of how the world came to be. They're going into Canaan with all those pagan groups and religions there. They'll have their own religious beliefs about how things came to be. And some of them didn't include a beginning. There were some worldviews at the time that just said the universe, the world, has always existed. There were others that said that the world was created and destroyed over and over and over again, this never-ending cycle of, of, of destruction and recreation. Even in more recent history, scientists have debated and believed at different times that the universe always existed. There was a time when science doubted the idea of a beginning. In fact, when the Big Bang Theory came out, Uh, a lot of scientists resisted it because to them it sounded too much like Genesis 1-1. They didn't want to believe or teach anything that would seem to validate the Bible. So they resisted that whole idea that there was a beginning. The Humanist Manifesto is a a a self-description of these materialistic, humanistic, secular scientists. And here's what it says. Religious humanists regard the universe as self-existing, not created. We begin with humans, not God. We can discover no divine purpose or providence for the human species. No deity will save us. We must save ourselves. Talk about a bleak worldview and perspective on things. But Genesis would beg to differ with this. It tells us there was a beginning, a moment of creation, and that doctrine of creation is essential. It's foundational to the Christian faith. But though it's foundational, though this is essential, I'm going to say this, we should approach the doctrine of creation with meekness. With meekness. Listen, there are plenty of arrogant people on both sides, if you want to say both sides. There are lots of varied opinions, but let's say there's two sides to this, right? And there are arrogant people on both. Scientists that argue Darwinian evolution is the undisputed fact of how life began, that the universe came about through these impersonal, undirected natural forces and processes. They are arrogant in that. They say it is scientific fact. It's not up for debate. But I've also come across prideful theologians who speak and act as if they were there, and they witnessed and they understand every little tidbit about how God made the universe. I hope that we can reject that kind of arrogance and let both science and scripture speak for themselves. Because science is not our enemy. Science is the way that we understand the world God made. And when we talk about the creation of humans, we'll talk about this. One of the first things God gave Adam to do was science, he told him to name the animals. That's science. Most of the modern, the founders of modern science were themselves Christians. Our enemy is not science, but scientism. Scientism is a near-religious philosophy. It's a worldview that claims that science is the best, if not the only, source of knowledge and truth. We reject that. Once again, no human being was there to witness creation before Adam and Eve came around. God revealed this creation account to Moses in a way that He knew our limited, human, fallen minds could comprehend and communicate to others. If I could get in a DeLorean and go 88 miles per hour and go back in time and witness creation, myself, with my own eyes, I don't think I would understand what I was seeing. I don't think I would fully comprehend what I was witnessing, and I certainly couldn't come back and tell you about it. What Genesis 1 describes for us is what God knew we could understand and what God wanted us to know. So whenever we're discussing creation, maybe you're talking to a young earth creationist that believes the world is 6,400 years old. Maybe you're talking to an evolutionary creationist that, God, that believes that God used evolution to direct the development of life and that the earth and the universe are billions of years old. Maybe you're, you could be talking to either one of those. Whichever it is, I hope that you will listen with humility and you will share your belief with grace. I've seen too many people driven away from church and from faith because somebody wanted them to, to adhere to a certain perspective of this. Now, I'm, I've told you my perspective, and I'll go more into that. But this is not a salvific issue. And in all of church history, never was the age of the earth, or whether you believed in 24-hour literal days in creation, that's never been used as a test for orthodoxy or heresy in all the church councils. In fact, you go back to the earliest of of the Christian writings after the New Testament. Long before Darwin or Copernicus or Galileo ever came around, there were differing opinions on how to translate Genesis 1. So we need to keep those things in mind. I've read fascinating theories and interpretations on opposing views of creation, all written by Christians who are trying to be faithful to God's Word and faithful to science, and they disagree with each other. You can be a Bible-believing, gospel-proclaiming, Jesus-following person and think differently on this than I do. I just want to put that out there. It's why it's important that we have to remember what St. Augustine said, what John Wesley later also said in essentials, unity, in non essentials, liberty, in all things, charity. Now, I believe this is the second point here. I believe that Genesis 1 through 3 is an historical account described with rich imagery to reveal absolute truth about God, the world, and humanity. It is history, it happened. I believe in a plain reading of Genesis 1. I believe that God created the world out of nothing, ex nihilo, by His spoken Word. And I believe that God did it in six literal days. Listen, I believe God could have done it in six seconds. Or God could have taken six trillion years to do it. It's God's prerogative. He made the world, not me. He didn't consult me on how long I think it should take. Did He consult you? But... That being said, I've never come across... And like I said, I've read a lot of fascinating theories. I've read some interesting arguments. I've never come across a valid reason not to take the text at at face value. I've yet to be convinced that a literal six-day creation is not how this text is meant to be read. Now, you may say, what about science? What about all the evidence of an old universe and an old earth? What about the dinosaurs, David? What about the Neanderthals, David? Well, I would be a fool to not acknowledge the tension between the the predominant scientific views and the historic Christian teachings on creation. There's a tension there. And as I said, many have tried to harmonize that belief in, in what Genesis 1 says with what science tells us today. Some, again, make some interesting arguments. And we don't have time to go into all that today. In fact, that would be a great Wednesday night study when we finish with uh, Route 66. That that might be where we go after that, right? We finish with Revelation, let's go back to Genesis and talk about some of these different perspectives and views and and why I think what, what we historically traditionally believe about the Bible is the thing to believe. Because you know what? Science is always changing, isn't it? Science is always changing. In fact, the essence of science is to test to postulate theories, to test them, to question what is. There is no such thing. We've heard this a lot in, in the news over the years about COVID and climate change and all this. There is no such thing as settled science. A scientist must always be open to the possibility that he or she is wrong, depending on the available data. I like to read scientific articles. I read lots of science articles, and I'm always coming across articles... That, that show some new discovery is making scientists rethink something they've long held. Here's just a few. Neanderthals and humans may belong to the same species, say scientists. It could rewrite the history of our evolution. Or this next one. A monumental prehistoric discovery in Siberia rewrites human history, scientists say. Or this one. These are all recent. New Webb Telescope observations throw a wrench in our understanding of the Big Bang. Or this one. James Webb Space Telescope prompts scientists to rethink understanding of the universe. Now, that's a pretty big deal when you've got to rethink your understanding of the universe, right? And then I think one more. Ancient black hole challenges our understanding of the early universe. It says the Big Bang theory is not threatened, but astrophysicists got some explaining to do. Listen, all of this is good. This is what science is supposed to do. Science is supposed to question. Science is supposed to challenge itself and change. Theories come and theories go depending on the latest data. But you know what does not change? You know what does not come and go? The Word of God. It is the same today as it was when it was written thousands of years ago. It has never changed. Nothing will ever change it. There's no discovery that's going to make us rewrite the Bible. There's nothing that's going to come along down the pike that's going to throw a wrench into our faith. So while I love science, I think science can teach us a lot about the world that God made and how it works. The Bible is the ultimate and final authority. I read a quote this past week that, that I think illuminates the, the difference between a materialistic scientific view of creation and what, what we believe as Christians. It says "As Christians believe in the virgin birth of Jesus. Materialists in the virgin birth of the cosmos. Choose your miracle. Choose your miracle. And I choose to believe in a God who spoke the universe into existence, who entered into that universe as a baby, who died upon the cross for our sins and rose again and is coming again. That's the miracle that I choose. There is a beginning. God, the universe was created. Secondly, the message of Genesis 1 is that God is the creator. In the beginning, God created the heavens... And the earth. Now that's an ancient way of saying that God created everything from A to Z, all-encompassing. Everything above us, everything around us, everything beneath us, all came from God's mind and His creative power. God created everything. Now we're going to look next week more specifically at what Genesis one teaches us about God, about the Creator. But the message of Genesis one is that not only did the universe. Again, not only did it was there a creation, but there was a creator. There was a person behind that creation. There was a mind behind that creation. There was one who was eternal and distinct from creation who made it all happen. He created the heavens and the earth. John 1 3. We heard this in our New Testament reading. All things were created through Him, and apart from Him, not one thing was created that has been created. Not one thing. Or as Paul said in Colossians 1 16. For everything was created by Him in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him. Now, since God created the natural world, that means the natural world can reveal truths to us about God. We can learn about the Creator through His creation. So we need to be careful that we don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. As we reject a naturalistic view of the world as we reject scientism that basically says that scientific truth is the only valid truth, right? That the only science holds the answer to life. As we throw that stuff out, let's not also throw out the creation itself. We should reject any view that says that the world that God made is inferior. That the world that God made doesn't matter. That's ancient Gnostic heresy. God created a real physical world, and he continues to sustain that world through real, natural laws. That's what Genesis 1 tells us. And just as God revealed himself in Scripture, he can reveal himself through the world that he has made. Paul says this in Romans 1, 19 and 20. He says, since what can be known about God is evident among them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world being understood by what He has made. As a result, people are without excuse. We can see much about God if we just open our eyes to the world around us. Scripture and nature have often been called God's two books. These two ways in which God has revealed Himself through special revelation, through general revelation. And that means that these two books have to be in agreement. Because as God spoke His creation into being by the Word... And that, that Word is Jesus. As God spoke His creation into being by the Word, He also breathed His Word into being by His Spirit. They are both works of God. And so when Scripture and science are each rightly understood, there's no conflict. They're in agreement. Because all truth is God's truth. If we take the truths of the Bible and the facts of science, when we understand them both rightly, there's no conflict. So we shouldn't be afraid of science. We shouldn't look down on it as inferior or untrustworthy. Just because there are atheistic scientists out there who try to use it to disprove the Bible any more than we would disregard the Bible because there are false teachers out there twisting and misusing it, right? We look for what the truth is and we hang on to it. Yes, we need to be tolerant of Christians who might have a bit of a different understanding than we do about all of this, but one thing we must never tolerate And that is any view that rejects God as the creator and sustainer of everything. However God did it, God did it. It is His, it belongs to Him, and it exists because of Him. God is the creator of everything. Third, God created an orderly universe. Look with me again at verse 2. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness covered the surface of the watery depths. The Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Then God said let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness He called night. There was an evening and there was a morning, one day. Now to the ancient mind, the world was a strange, uncertain, dangerous place. And I guess depending on where you go, it still is, right? I mean, there's still a little bit of that out there. But the ancients views the cosmos in terms of chaotic forces at war with each other. You had all these different gods. You had the the sun, the moon, the stars. You had the god of rain and storms and wind. You had the god of of certain rivers and the oceans and all of this. And they were all at war with each other, which is why there's storms and why there's suffering and why all this stuff is going on. That's what they believed. And they believed you had to appease all of these different gods. And and that was hard to do because they were capricious gods. They were fickle and they were temperamental. But Genesis presents us an ordered world, set with boundaries and patterns, with laws of nature, a God who overcomes chaos to bring order. Verse 2 says, the earth was formless and empty, or formless and void. The Hebrew phrase there I love, it's fun to say, it's tohu vavohu. Say that with me. Tohu vavohu. It's kind of fun. And that means literally a wasteland, a place that's desolate, empty, It can also mean chaos. I think what God is telling us here is He created a world, a universe, filled with potential. God created a blank canvas that needed to be filled. God created a ball of of softy dough that needed to be shaped and formed. Science actually backs up this idea of an ordered universe. Physics, mathematics... Genetics. My family and I were watching Apollo 13 the other day. And let me just say, first of all, it's amazing that we ever put three men onto a missile, launched it into the sky, aimed it at the moon 240,000 miles away, and, and a moving target, by the way, and we landed them there and brought them safely home. And we did that more than once. It's amazing. But when you're watching this movie and you see the problems that arrives with the Apollo thirteen mission and, and here these scientists are back in Houston. They can't see that capsule and lunar module hurtling toward the moon. They can't lay eyes on where it is or where it's going, but they are able to get those men around the moon and safely back home and land in the landing zone using math. Now I know boys and girls that doesn't sound like fun. I never liked math either. But it's amazing. They solve all those problems with math. Listen, that is only possible because God created a predictable, dependable, ordered universe. The fact that math and physics exist, the fact that you can calculate where a planet or a moon is going to be, the fact that we can usually predict the weather, for the most part, is because God created an ordered universe. We call this the fine-tuning of the universe. Without the precise strength of the force of gravity, our solar system wouldn't exist. Water and and the atmosphere would not stay on the earth. Our hearts would not be able to circulate blood through our body. The universe is fine-tuned just so with gravity that we can exist on this planet. And the earth is just the right distance from the sun. Its axis is tilted just enough so that we neither burn up nor freeze to death. God created an ordered universe. And Genesis 1 tells us two ways in which He did that. First, God brought order through separation. Much of God's creative activity involves separating light from darkness, day from night, sky from land, from oceans. Plants and animals are placed in certain spheres to live. Fish swim in the ocean, birds fly in the sky. Cattle live on the ground. Living things reproduce after their kind, which means that horses don't give birth to whales and ducks don't hatch hamsters. (laughs) Although it would be kind of fun if they did. God brought order through separation and God secondly brought order in sequence. We see the repetition in this chapter of evening and morning the first day, evening and morning the second day, evening and morning the third day. I think we sometimes get so hung up on whether these are literal 24-hour days, which I believe they were, but we get so hung up on this that we lose the fact that God created the world in sequence, in an order. This all didn't just happen at once. He spaced all of this out. And it's interesting. When you look at what science says about the history of the universe, it actually lines up pretty good with Genesis 1. What does science tell us? That light energy came first. God said, bang, and there was light, right? Let there be light. Bang, there was light. So the beginning of the universe, according to science, is light and energy. Energy before matter. That's what we read in Genesis 1. Then come stars and planets, just as in Genesis 1. The earth was lifeless. Land and seas are rising and falling and forming and moving. That's what Genesis 1 says. Life began simply. Plants, then fish and birds, cattle and land animals, and finally people. That's what science says. Now, we don't agree with the explanations of who and how and why and all that with science, but it's amazing when you pull all the Darwinian philosophy and all of that out, it's amazing how much science validates what Genesis 1 tells us. Much to the chagrin of the atheists, by the way. They can't stand that. God created ordered universe. Secondly, God created a purposeful, or I guess this is number four, God created a purposeful universe. Now again, we can debate the methods and the timing and all of that, but what is undisputable is the purpose of creation. The Bible is abundantly clear why God created the world. He created it first for His own pleasure. Revelation 4.11 says, Our Lord and God, you are worthy to receive glory and honor and power because you have created all things and by your will, or some translations say, by your pleasure, they exist and were created. God created because He wanted to. It was His will. It was for His pleasure that He created the universe. He's a creator God. That's what He does. Secondly, for His own glory. Psalm 19.1-2 says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The expanse proclaims the work of His hands. Day after day, they pour out speech. Night after night, they communicate knowledge. But not only did God create the universe for a purpose, He created it with a purpose. He imbued creation with purpose. He created it for His pleasure and for His glory, and He created it for filling and forming. In Genesis 1-2, yes, the earth was tohu vavohu, but not for long. In the next verse, God begins to fill and form His creation. Light in the darkness, land from the sea, a firmament to separate the waters above from the waters below, lights to rule day and night and to mark seasons, plants and animals and ultimately people. God created a world for a purpose. He created a world with purpose. He meant for it to be filled and formed. Number five, God created a good Universe. Six times in this chapter we're told that God saw all that He had made and it was good. good. But the seventh time God saw what He has made and it was good. very good indeed. The Hebrew there is mayod tov. Say mayod tov. Mayod tov. That word mayod means abundantly, exceedingly, powerfully, to the highest degree. Very doesn't even quite capture it. And tov is the Hebrew word for good. If you want to say good morning in Hebrew, you say boker tov. It means good. But it can also mean desirable, pleasant, beautiful, suitable, the best. So the universe, the earth, Every plant and animal, the air, the water, the soil, you and me, our bodies and our brains, it's all Mayod, Tove, very good, powerfully pleasing, abundantly desirable, exceedingly beautiful, perfectly suited. That's God's perspective. That's how God sees his handiwork. Now, of course, this is before sin comes onto the scene, before the curse and the fall. But you know what? The curse of sin does not change the fact that God made a world that is good, that is very good. It means that our bodies are not things to just reject or reshape or escape from when life gets hard. It means that the environment and the natural resources are gifts from God's hand intended to be managed and used for good purposes. It means that God intends for us to enjoy the beauty of the sunset. To marvel at a mountaintop view, to play in the waves of the ocean, to delight in a good meal, to sing and dance, and to find joy in the company of family and friends, because everything that God made is very good—even Kansas. (laughs) Shelley told me last week I was wrong. Kansas is not the flattest state. It's like number five out of fifty, so it's in the top ten percent. You know, I mean, I'm just, you know, so there, there, there you go. But even Kansas is very good. God created a good world. And so any worldview, any philosophy or religion that says anything less than that is false. Yes, the world is broken. That's why Jesus came to fix it. Jesus came to put God's broken world back together. Jesus came to restore the inherent goodness in God's creation, beginning with you and me, restoring us to a right relationship with the Father. God created a good world and finally God created people in His image. Look with me at verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. They were all the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in His own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. Now we're going to take a couple of sermons later on to unpack what the Bible teaches about humanity, about what these verses teach us about humanity. But today let's see two things. One that God created people with purpose. God created universe with purpose. He created people with purpose and our purpose is bound up in our identity as bearers of the imago Dei, of the image of God. Our purpose as bearers of that image are to represent and reflect the creator to his creation and to rule on his behalf by continuing to fill and form the good world that he made. That's our purpose. Look at verse 28. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. That word subdue means to bring under your control. It means to harness. God is calling Adam and Eve to fill the earth and to form it, to shape it, to take what God has given and continue to do what He was doing by His definition of what is very good. We don't get to shape it and form it by our definition of good. That always ends in disaster. We're to do it by His definition of what is very good. God created people for purpose. Secondly, He created people for partnership. That is part of our purpose. Because every person is uniquely made in God's image, we equally possess a special dignity and sacredness. We are separate and distinct from the animals God made. We're not just some evolved higher form of animal. We are separate and distinct from the animals God made, and we are separate and distinct from the God who made us. You may remember Psalm 103 says, Know that the Lord Himself is God. It is He who has made us, and not we ourselves. There is no such thing as a self-made man. We're made by God. And we are not God's equals. We're nowhere close to God's equals. Amen? Yet He has chosen us to be in relationship with Him. He has chosen us to partner with Him for the beauty of the earth. This is the message of Genesis 1. And if I had to sum it all up into one phrase, it would be this. Creation exists for and through Jesus. And we see that in Colossians 1, verses 15 through 20. It says that He, meaning Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by Him, In heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and by Him all things hold together. He's also the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that He might come to have first place in everything. For God was pleased to have all His fullness dwell in Him and through Him to reconcile everything to Himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through His blood shed on the cross. Jesus Christ, the eternal Word, is creation's source, creation's goal, and creation's sustaining power, and someday He will completely renew and redeem all of creation back to that original goodness that God made. Creation is good. Because it was made through Jesus and is being renewed by Jesus. Creation has order and purpose because the Logos, the eternal Word of God, brought it into existence. And through Jesus, it will once again have complete order and reach its fullest potential in Him when He returns. And know this Jesus made you, He made you. You exist for and through Him. Jesus knows you and he still loves you and he loves me. Jesus died to redeem us from sin and from death. Listen, Jesus wants to drive the darkness and chaos of sin out of your life and replace it with his light, with his life and his truth. He wants to give you a new purpose. He wants to fill and form your mind and your heart with his joy and peace and love and strength. Will you come to Jesus today? And let Him make you into a new creation. Maybe that's what you need today. Maybe you've got the chaos and darkness of sin in your life and you feel purposeless and you don't feel like your life is very ordered and you don't feel like you're very good and you know that you are separated from God by your sins. Jesus came. He was born as we just celebrated. He died and rose again so that you could be forgiven and be made right with your Creator. He wants to make you into a new creation. Will you come and do that today? By faith, will you turn from your sin and put your trust in Jesus? Maybe God is speaking to you in other ways this morning. Maybe He's calling you to a renewed, bold meekness in how you witness to other people. We're to be bold in what the Bible teaches. We're to be bold in what our faith says and we share it unapologetically, but we do it with meekness. We do it with gentleness, as Peter tells us. But we always have an answer ready to give to those who ask us why we believe what we believe. Maybe God is convicting you about that this morning. Or maybe He's convicting you about the fact that you've adopted some of these secular worldly views about the world, about you, about where we came from. And it's discoloring your perspective on God's good world. It's distorting your perspective on humanity and who we are made to be and how we are supposed to live. Maybe God is convicting you that you've led a little too much of this worldly perspective into your heart and mind. Maybe God is stirring within you a new sense of wonder, appreciation, gratitude, and praise for the beautiful earth that He has made for us. Maybe God is calling you to be a better steward of the resources and gifts that He gives to you. How is God calling you? How is He calling us to partner with Him in filling and forming this world for His glory and bearing fruit for His kingdom? Whatever God is speaking to you today, in faith and trust and obedience, let us answer His call. Would you stand and pray with me? Father, we are thankful for the world that You have made. We're thankful that You're the one who made it. We're not here by accident. We're not here by some impersonal force out there in the universe. We are here because of a personal God, our Father, who has created us and who through Jesus Christ recreates us into new people. I thank you for that. And God, I pray that you would give us deeper insight as we study your Word, God. Help us to see the truth of your Word, the truth that you made this world, you made it good, and though sin tries its best to wreak havoc on it, Lord, you still have a purpose for this world. You have a purpose for each of us. And God, that purpose begins with a relationship with Jesus Christ. And if there's anyone here that needs to begin that walk with Jesus, may they do so right now. May they confess their sin, may they put their trust in what Jesus did, and ask Him to forgive them and live through them, Lord. I pray that You would help them to do that today. And God, whatever else You may be speaking to our hearts, Lord, whatever the message You've given to each one of us, wherever You're convicting us and stirring us and challenging us, may we take up that call seriously and obediently and do what You say.